It's the end of the school year. Some of you that are college students are already well into your summer, and, and some of you are almost there, and the light is at the end of the tunnel. When we look at the events of Jesus' life and we try to put ourselves in terms of where he would be this time of year, we're actually at what the church has historically called Ascension Sunday. Uh, We've been talking together now for uh, several weeks after Easter of how Jesus spent time with his disciples for another 40 days. And in those 40 days, he reminded the disciples of many of the things that he taught them while he was with them and before he went to the cross. But he, now that they had seen the cross and that they'd seen him rise again from the dead, surely it all came home in a new way. And so for 40 days, he was able to impress upon them the things that they needed to know as he was preparing them for his departure. And so if you've been keeping track and you've been hearing the number 40, you'll realize now we're just past 40 days. And it was at 40 days that Jesus uh, said goodbye to his disciples, said, you're not going to see me physically anymore and wait here in Jerusalem until I send another helper, the Holy Spirit. And so this is the day where we remember his, his final blessing, if you will, in person to them and then his ascending back to the Father. But in those days, what he was doing was he was showing them how from the old te- what we call the Old Testament, that there was so much in there that was already preparing the way for them to expect his life and his death and his resurrection. And so he, with what the scriptures were available to him, walked them through. It says the law and the prophets and showed them all of the things about himself so that they could know that what they believed had been prophesied long ago, that they could have confidence in in the faith that they were now going to be summoned to go out into the world and to share with everybody they would encounter. So we've entitled this series, The Power of the Spirit, because we're, we're going backwards and looking at a prophet named Elisha who learned about the Spirit even long before the day of Pentecost. He longed to have the, the Spirit that his predecessor, Elijah, had. And he knew that if he was going to do anything for God, that he needed to do it by the strength that God gives. And see, we learn in the cross and in the resurrection that we couldn't save ourselves. We needed God to save us. Well, we also need God to help us live out this life that we're called to, even as people who believe in him. So we didn't need him just for one thing, and then we can kind of go away from him and ignore him and and maybe consult him every now and again. We always need him, and thankfully, he is always with us. And so what we're learning together, looking at the life of Elisha, is how God is with us. And today, we're in 2 Kings chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. And so if you're uh, opening up a Bible, it's on page 310, 2 Kings chapter 4 and verse 18. And we're going to look at the power of life. For those of you who weren't with us last week, we had met a a husband and a wife in a small town called Shunem, which we're not very familiar with, but it's really close to Nazareth, a town that Jesus grew up in. And there was a lady who was very hospitable and generous to the prophet. They actually not only brought him in for meals occasionally, but eventually made a a room on the top of their house so that he would always have a place to stay with them whenever he was traveling through as a prophet throughout the land of Israel. And our story ended last time with Elisha prophesying that they would have a child. 
They did not have a son, and Elisha prophesied that they would have one in about a year. And even though they didn't request it, they didn't ask for him to do that, they didn't ask for God to do that, they were blessed and amazed by the miracle of a child. And that's where we ended in verse 17. And now we're picking it up with verse 18. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. And the father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon. And then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. And then she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, Why will you go to him today? It's neither a new moon nor a Sabbath. And she said, All is well. And then she saddled the donkey and said to her servant, Urge the animal on, do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. And so she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there's the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with your child? And she answered, All is well. And when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet, and Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress. And the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. And then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? And he said to Gehazi, tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. And if you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply and lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. And so he arose and followed her. And Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child. But there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore he returned to meet him and told him, The child has not awakened. And when Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed, and so he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. And then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. And then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house. And then went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. And then he 
summoned Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. And so he called her. And when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. And then she picked up her son and went out. This will conclude our portion of Scripture for this morning. So last week we ended with this miraculous birth of a son. And actually the way the story began for us last week, if you still have your Bible open and you're looking up to verse 11, it just says, one day, uh, one day the prophet came and, and not in any way unusual from any other day. It was just an ordinary day that he came. But he made a request, uh, wanted to know what he could do, and we had this unexpected birth. And then in verse 18, we find that this child, now grown, large enough, strong enough to be able to go out and work into the field, it says again that he went out one day to his father among the reapers. Nothing that when they woke up that morning, anybody had a premonition that this day is going to be a different day. It's just another day. Just one day, he goes out to work into the field with his father. And we're not even one verse further on in the story that this unexpected birth all of a sudden becomes, uh, if you will, overwhelmed by this unexpected death. And so the first thing that we see is a family's loss. We see that while he was out in the field, he was complaining about his head. It doesn't seem that he was complaining enough to raise too much of an alarm. It was, well, okay, he's, he's not feeling good. We're out in the middle of the field. Maybe there's not shade. Uh, get, him, you know, get him somewhere better. Get him, go take him to his mother. And then when we read that he's with his mother... He's just sitting on her lap, and there's almost nothing that even as we're reading it, are we getting prepared for the fact that something tragic is about to happen. And it almost surprises you when you're reading it that at the end of verse 20 it reads, and then he died. And this family is now dealing with this loss. She says later in our verses, she, she reminds Elisha of what she had said before and what we said last week that she didn't request and ask for a son. When the prophet said, is there anything I can do for you? Is there anything that you would like? She actually expressed that she was content, that she was fine. She was happy to be with her own people and had learned how to be content in the situation that she was in. He made the prophecy, he made the prediction even though they had not made the request. And so here they are feeling almost if there's been a bait and switch, if you will. Well, what's, what's going on here? What, we didn't ask for this. We didn't, we didn't try to coerce anything to make this happen. It's happened. We're excited about all of the opportunity and all of the potential of, that life brings, and that's what we looked at last time, the promise that life brings, a sense of hope in the future, and that things will continue on even beyond us, and they have all of that, except for this one day. And so they're struggling with this loss, and then 
we read that she could have had a number of reactions, but what she actually does in verse 21 is she takes her son and she lays him on the bed that would have been Elisha's bed, the the room that they made for him on their rooftop that he could come to any time he needed to. She actually goes and takes him up there and now wants to go and to see this prophet. So this is the loss that they're experiencing this one and only son that they have. And then next we realize that the prophet actually has a dilemma. He sees her coming from far away, and he's wondering what's going on. As a prophet, he sometimes got inside information. Like last week, he knew, when nobody else knew, or nobody else could even believe it, that there would be a son that that's part of the role of a prophet, that God would communicate to a prophet and the prophet would communicate to others. He sees them coming and he starts to realize, I don't know why they're coming. I, haven't, I don't have a message. I'm a prophet. I don't, I, don't have a, <laughs> I don't have a message. And so he sends a servant to find out what's going on. And she the mother gives the same answer to the prophet's servant that she did to her own husband when they were trying to find out what's going on. She says, all is well, which is basically, I'm not going to tell you. I'm, I'm trying to get somewhere. And so everything's fine. Just give me what I need. The servant comes running up. I don't feel like stopping and talking to you. I want to go directly to the prophet himself. And so she tells him, all is well. And then she comes, and finally, all of the strength that she's been able to muster in these last couple of hours, this journey is roughly 20 hours, and she's not driving. So she's trying to make this journey as fast as she can, and she tells the servant, don't think just because I'm a woman we can't go fast. Go as fast as you can. I'll tell you if it's too fast, okay? But we've got somewhere to go. And when she finally, having mustered up all of that strength that it would take just even to to physically move with all of the emotions that she has to be dealing with. When she finally gets to the prophet, it says that she falls down and she grabs onto him. And then he realizes something is not well. Can see past the answer that she had given. And the servant, thinking that she's, well, if all is well, then what, what are you doing? And so wanting to say, hey, you know, please get up, get away from Elijah, and he says, no, leave her alone. She's in bitter distress, and then he acknowledges it. The Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. And so he's got this dilemma that he doesn't have a message. He doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know why it happened, and he doesn't know what's about to happen. And he's the prophet. And so as many unanswered questions as the family would have, he also has. He, he can't give an answer. Well, this is, this is what the Lord is doing. This is why this happened. As a prophet, he's actually found speechless. The one who has the responsibility to speak has nothing to say because he doesn't know what's going on. And he doesn't know what's about to go on. And then we get from her own words, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? 
And so indirectly it settles in on him what has happened, that something has happened to the son. And so he sends his servant out and he says, take my staff and lay the staff on the child. And then the next dilemma that the prophet encounters is that while he's heading himself back towards the city, his servant comes and says, I did what you told me to do and it didn't work. I I took your staff, I went as fast as I could go, I laid your staff on him, and he did not waken. There were no signs of life. And so in this story, we also see a faith's persistence. Because at a number of points, it's not difficult for us to imagine how differently this could have gone. A burial in that culture would have happened usually within a day. And so it it strikes us when we're reading it that the mother, instead of running out and getting her husband and organizing all that would need to have been organized just to have a decent burial within a less than a 24-hour period, it says that she actually puts him up on a bed. If she just wanted to complain, to the prophet, if she just wanted him to hear her anger and her frustration, that could have happened afterwards. So the fact that she actually proceeds to him immediately tells us something about her faith. She's a strong woman, and she's not accepting that this is it. She's not accepting that this is it and that this is how it's going to be. And then even the prophet, even though he hasn't received the message and even though his own servant can now come back to him and say, I've tried what you told me to do and it didn't work, he still goes. You know, it it could have been at that moment in time that he just leaned, just, you know, turned over to her and said, I'm sorry, we've done everything that we can do. I mean, what more could you expect? What more could you ask? And he could have immediately transitioned into just care, pastoral care for this woman, and then eventually when he would meet the entire family in their loss. But he doesn't do that. He himself believes that this isn't it. This isn't the end. And so he continues on. And actually, if you read through it, you almost, when you read through it, you're like, am I, I, did he do the same thing twice or not? Or did I like doze off part of the way in reading it? But when he gets there, he, he makes contact, his body with the body of the son. And it says that the young son's body starts to warm up. But then it says he gets up and he's pacing around the house. That's what it says he's doing. So now he's tried something, and it didn't work. I mean, it seemed maybe like it was going to, but it didn't. And so he himself, not, not just his, his staff and his servant didn't work, but the, the first thing he did when he comes into the room doesn't work. And after pacing, he then goes, and it says that he stretches himself upon him again, and then the child sneezes and opens his eyes. And so she persists 
to reach out to him, to make this journey and to bring the prophet back. He persists past his own ignorance, past the failure of his own servant, even past his own failure initially to see life brought back through his own prayers. And so we see both in the faith of this Shunammite woman and in Elisha this determination and conviction that there is something more. And then we see a power revealed that this son who's laden dead on Elisha's bed is able to sneeze seven times and then finally to open his eyes so that Elisha can call in the mother and say, now pick up your son. But not pick up your son to bury him, but pick up your son who is alive and who is well. And we see the power of life in these verses. And one of the main points that our passage tells us today is our passage, it affirms the reality of death, but it rejects the finality of death. This story, it affirms to us the reality of loss and the reality of death, but it rejects the finality of that loss or that death. It insists, even before our own Savior rose from the dead, and was able in his own life to walk around and to demonstrate to people in in preparing the way for our Savior reveals to us that life is more powerful than death. There is a power greater than our loss and greater than our death. There is something else. There is something more above and beyond, greater and bigger that they can rest on. That even though they themselves, even though they were believers, even though they were hospitable, even though they were generous, uh, even though they had a great relationship with the prophet, the reality of pain and the reality of loss still came to them. But they had a reason to believe that death was not the end. And we have good reason as well to believe that death is not the end. It does not have the final say. However we experience it, in whatever way it comes, it does not have the final say. There's something in the story that's almost frustrating in its lack of detail. You're wondering, how did he sound when he said, you know, my head, my head? Because you're wondering, like, is the father, does he didn't care? He just, you know, go send him to his mother. And you're like, did he, did he, not, did he not realize maybe how, how severe it was going to come? And, and then you're wondering, well, it just says that he's laying on the lap of his mother. Like, why aren't they, you know, pouring cold water on him or something? To just to, it, it doesn't tell us what's happening. Because the point of the passage is not how this son died. It's not about the cause of death. The point of the passage is about death itself and that however it happens, it is not final. However it happens, 
whether it is through old age, whether it is through disease, or whether it is through tragic loss, it is not the end. And there's something inside of every one of us, from whatever background you've come here this morning, whatever your particular sets of beliefs are, even if you don't believe in a God, you have this internal sense of how the world should work, of how life should work. And that when you hear stories of someone who dies young or when you hear somebody who struggles with disease, there's something inside of you that just knows that's not how it should be. That isn't the way the world should work. That isn't the way that life should unfold. We all have this internal sense of the wrongness Of death. And in the words of C.S. Lewis, he said, If all of us know what it's like to feel hungry, then we must live in a world in which there's food. And if all of us know what it's like to be thirsty, we must be living in a world where there's something that we need to drink because we experience this universal longing. And so if all of us, no matter what we come from or what we've experienced, have this internal longing, that life does continue, that death is not the end, that it does not have the final say, that is it hard to believe that there is another world for which we were made and that this one is not it? Because in this one, we do experience the pain and the loss that comes from disease and from death. And so breaking into our world is this example of a reason for us to have hope that life is more powerful than death. And now I invite you to to sort of fast forward with me into the New Testament, into Luke chapter 24, where we'll see Jesus himself now, right before he ascends, away from his disciples, reminding them these very same things, that actually in the power of Jesus' life, We have victory not only over death, but also over sin. And so we're going to Luke chapter 24 on page 885, and we're going to begin in verse 36. If you're using one of the Bibles that's been provided for you, you'll see that it's titled as a section, Jesus appears to his disciples. This is an appearance that Jesus makes after he has died. And he is now talking to his disciples after he has died, demonstrating, proving to them that there is a life more powerful than death. And this is what we read. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. That is, I myself touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. And then he said to them, 
These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. And here we see the power of Jesus' life, not only over death, but over sin. You see, all of us have a, a, an awareness and a hope and a desire that when accidents happen or, or, or tragedy arises, that there is some solution. There is some opportunity. Most of us have some form of insurance that will take care of the issues when something completely outside of our control happens to us. But the other thing that we know instinctively is not only that we desire that the world go on, but that we know that in our own hearts, we feel a sense of guilt. And there isn't in our world a solution to the reality of our own disobedience and our sin that would actually bring harm upon ourselves. And so that if, if you want to cause an accident in your own home and then try to collect the insurance, they'll say, wait a minute, you did that. <laughs> you messed that up on purpose. And we wonder about that. We wonder if there's a solution to the, to the mistakes that we've made, to the sins that we've committed. And that not only is it, is it possible for us to be protected from just pure uh, accidents, but can we be protected from the things that we've even done that rightfully bring upon us punishment, that rightfully bring upon us pain? And so Jesus explains to them that in his death, he's not just showing them victory over the grave, but he says that because of his death, in verse 47, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Because the story of Jesus is not that he was a young boy who just one day happened to die and nobody knows why, but as an adult man willingly offering himself as an atonement for you and for me. So that in his death and rising again, we don't just look back and say, wow, that's an amazing story. But we realize the implications that it has for us. Because he died and rose again. He offers to us forgiveness. He calls us to repentance. And he gives us not only power over the eventuality of our death, but he gives us power that forgives us of all of our sins so that the new life that we can experience in him is not another life just like this one, but that it's a life free from pain, free from sin, free from lying, free 
from cheating and from struggling. And so I used to sing this song growing up, and maybe you did too. I will sing of my Redeemer. The third verse says, I will sing of my Redeemer, and his triumphant power I'll tell, and how the victory he giveth over sin and death and hell. And so I will sing of my Redeemer and his wondrous love to me and how on the cruel cross he suffered and shed his blood to purchase you and me. That's what we come together every week to celebrate is the power of Jesus' life, resurrected life over the cross, over the grave, that gives us victory over sin and death and hell. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you knowing that you've not loved us from a distance. That you've not governed our lives from afar, but that you yourself have entered into our world. And you've shown us through your own Son that we have reason to believe and to hope that death is not the end. That all that this world would throw at us in surprises on ordinary days or in sickness that we struggle with for years, everything that this world can bring cannot take away the hope that you give. But Father, like your disciples, we pray that that sometimes our faith is weak. And sometimes we find it difficult and hard to believe that such good news could also be true. And so we pray that through your spirit that you sent from on high, that you would convict us of the truth of how good and great you are. Father, help our lives to be lived in such a way that we reflect the hope and the confidence that you give through your Son, our Lord. Amen.